Genesis 3 were uh, the chapter describing the fall of man, the first human beings falling into sin. As you know, we've talked about this enough now that the Lord told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He made that very plain, and yet they disobeyed anyway. And so he passes judgment on them. He first passed judgment on the uh, serpent, verses 14 and 15. Uh, he said, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then he next passed judgment on the woman, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so the woman from that point on would endure pain in childbirth, and then there would be a struggle, as we explained last week in their marriage, the woman trying to control the man, the man seeking to dominate the woman, all because of selfishness. And so now there's disharmony. And there was perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now in marriages, there's a tendency because of our sin nature for disharmony. And that is the natural. That's going to be the natural direction of marriages from then on. Now, if God does a supernatural work in the heart of salvation, then, then, then you have a person who's people who are saved, who now are, are able to follow Christ. That brings us tonight to verses 17 and 19. Judgment is passed on the man. Judgment is passed on the man. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed it is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Now for the first time since we've been looking at this, God uses the proper name Adam. He calls him Adam. Before he'd called him the man. Uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 26, he'd called him uh, just man, plain man in 126. He'd called him the man in chapter 2, verse 18. He'd called him the woman's husband in chapter 3, verse 6. But now he says, he says Adam. And I don't think there's any significance to that because Adam means man or mankind, depending on the context, so they're all the same meaning. But what we will find here is that the punishment for Adam all revolves around one thing, and that is the ground. It all revolves around the ground. Verse 17, the Lord says, cursed is the ground. And verses 17 and 19 all have to do with the ground in one way or another. First of all, the reason the ground is cursed, and again, we have notes on the podium back there, if you need them. The reason is the ground is verse, uh, cursed in verse 17 is very simple. It's cursed because the man disobeyed the Lord. That's what it says. Now, it, it says the word because there in verse 17. Uh, to, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. You've eaten from the tree. Now go back to verse 6. What does verse 6 say? It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So when you, when you see this, there's nothing about a conversation recorded in verse 6. You don't see that between a man and his wife. There is nothing about a conversation prior to this time where he partakes of, of this act of disobedience. 
It says nothing at all about a conversation anywhere where the woman's trying to convince the man of the alleged, alleged benefits of eating from the tree. Verse 6 only has the wife contemplating the benefits of the tree, she thinks. That follows this persuasive conversation from the serpent after she listened to him. So how did the man listen to the voice of his wife? That's what it says in verse 17. There's two possibilities. One is that there is a conversation between them that is not recorded. It's not recorded in chapter 3 anywhere, but that seems strange to me in light of the fact this is a monumental chapter, foundational chapter. It just seems strange to me that that wouldn't be recorded. Now, if there was a conversation, it's not there, and it's a possibility. Secondly, second option is what certain people hold to, and I, I myself lean towards as well. The phrase, listen to the voice of your wife, simply means to obey the voice of your wife. That's a Hebrew idiom, and a lot of people take it that way. How did Adam listen to the voice of his wife? He obeyed her. Now, that's listening. Now, women, by the way, wives, you say, my husband never listens to me. But if he does what you say, he heard you. That's the, that's the proofs in the pudding there. Verse 6 only says she gave the fruit to her husband and he ate. In other words, her actions, in my opinion, spoke volumes. That's all she needed to do. The man obeyed his wife by taking the fruit. No words necessary, as I said that when you're in verse 6, but he got the message. That's how I take it. But however you take this conversation, uh, whether it's not recorded and what is the most, one of the most fundamentally important chapters of the Bible or as an idiom, the bottom line is the same. The man obeyed his wife. Instead of doing what the Lord wants, he obeyed his wife and disobeyed the Lord. God had said in chapter 2, verse 17, you, will not, you shall not eat of it. That's a divine command. But Adam disobeys the Lord in favor of his wife. He values his wife's contemplation over Satan's persuasive words over what, over what the Lord had said. This woman was walking by sight. Verse 16 says she saw the tree. She values what she sees. She's walking by sight. That's more important to her at this point than faith in God's word. But the blame is placed on the man. And that is reinforced by the words you and your. Look at verses 17 and 19 and notice those words you and your again and again and again. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you, Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree. I told you not to eat of this. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall, grow for, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again and again, emphasizing, it's on you, Adam. This is on you. You did this. That's the reason why God cursed the ground, because Adam disobeyed the Lord. Again, as I've said before, we must be careful of being led astray by whom we hear. If people are talking to you, uh, you know, these can even be relatives and friends giving you advice. Even under the, the idea that we're talking about the Word of God here, they'll, they may say, you, say to you, if they've been listening to the wrong voices and they're giving you advice, better be very careful. Make sure what you hear is from the Word of God. Sometimes relatives and friends can give you the worst counsel of anybody. People have told me, Oh, my relative is a Christian, but they told me this, and I'm thinking, boy, that's non-Christian advice, if I ever heard it. Be very careful that what you hear in words or see in action from your relatives, sometimes, sometimes by their very example, they can lead you astray. Be careful. And so the reason the ground is cursed is because Adam 
disobeyed God. Now the effects of the ground being cursed. The effects. Notice verse 14, verse 17 again, cursed is the ground because of you. That's the same word used in verse 14 uh, in regard to the serpent, where it says, cursed are you more than all cattle. Same word. And this time, the ground is cursed because of man. So how does this play out? What are the effects of the ground being cursed? Number one, first of all, work will become difficult. Work will become difficult. One of the effects. Now understand, in Old Testament times, agriculture was big. Uh, farming was big. It was common. The men went to work as farmers often in agriculture, while the woman was basically a homemaker and mother, even though that entailed a lot of work for them but the man worked the fields. And so the Lord says here, in toil you will eat of it. The word toil, translated toil, is the same word pain, the first time the word pain is mentioned in verse 16. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That's the same word translated toil in this verse. So just as the woman labors in childbirth with, with pain, aspects of misery and hardship, so the man is, is going to experience his own form of hardship as he goes to work. It's going to be a pain-filled labor for him. Labor that brings a degree of sorrow. Can anybody say amen to that? Now understand, labor itself is not the problem. It's not the problem. Now people, I tell you what, I see people all the time that are grown men walking around in my neighborhood, not working for a living. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't understand this phenomenon that's happening now. Uh, but labor itself is not the problem. Work is not cursed. Work is a good thing. Labor is a good thing. It's a good thing to work for your paycheck. That's a good thing. Work is ordained by God. The Lord put Adam to work in the garden before the fall. He ordained work before the fall. And then it was not toilsome. Then it was not, labor it was not laborious. It was not uh, a problem because there was no sin. But now labor is going to become a problem. It's going to become... A, a, a job filled with problems. When I worked, for example, when I worked for the uniform route, I was a uniform route guy for years, and uh, uh, when you're in that job, long days, early mornings, long days, tons of labor, tons of problems with customers, all kinds of problems. And I tell you what, the guys would come on Monday to go to work. And you can see them come in, heads hanging low, no smiles on their faces, very depressed. And I knew what was going on. They don't want to be here. They wish it was the weekend. They were talking about the weekend all the time. Depressed. And then as the week went on, you see them pick up a little bit. Wednesday, Thursday, that means tomorrow's Friday, right? And then Friday, you heard this all day, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Does anybody here say that? Said that all day. I said it. <laughs> and the weekend was coming, and they would say, wow. It's still, and then Friday evening, the, the weekend's here. I get, I get to party, and... Those guys wanted to get drunk. They would talk about it all the time. And why? Because for them, it was just toilsome labor. It was just something they didn't want to do. They did it. They did, they, did, they did well at it, but they didn't want to do it. And is it a bad thing to work? No. It's just that the entrance of sin into the world changed everything. Changed everything. Why do you think so many people want to be on welfare from the government? It's because, let's be honest, a lot of this is I don't want to work for a living. Can I get a free ride from the government? And many people are in that position. But the punishment is not work itself, but the toil and the frustration and the pains and the problems that come that accompany that work. And that's not a temporary situation. Notice he says here, 
that this is going to entoil you for how long? All the days of your life. I don't think they had a retirement program back then. Think about that. If you don't work, you really, you really aren't going to make it. That sounds like deja vu, though. He said, have we seen the phrase, all the days of your life before? Look at verse 14. Verse 14, this Lord curses a serpent. He says, on your belly you will go, dust you will eat. For how long? All the days of your life. This is the exact same phrase. So now the man is going to spend his life in this kind of difficulty at the workplace. And that's what it says. He's not going to live forever, though, because it says all the days of his life. That suggests a limitation of life. Look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, this suggests that uh, the, garden was, uh, the garden was going to be, before the fall, was weed-free. It was weed-free. And uh, th that means no thorns, no thistles, uh, no pest. How many of you try to grow a garden in your backyard even? Or, we, we do that. And, you know, uh, there's no insects devouring crops. Now, after, now be, the farmer has to be concerned about things. Before, he didn't have to be. Now, he's got to be concerned about weeds and about thistles and thorns and things like soil. Is the soil good for planting? Is it good for that? I mean, what about weather conditions? You read about farmers and having weather conditions that storms can destroy crops. Lack of rain can destroy crops. Things can wither away. Animals and insects can eat the food that is grown. So many things can go wrong. That's all a part of the world of work. And you know this from your own jobs. You should know this. All occupations have their own thistles and thorns. They have their own problems to deal with. Every job has problems to deal with. If I interviewed all of you, we'd tell me all your problems at, at work. Customers who are difficult to deal with. I'm getting some amens already. Employees who don't show up on time who don't do their job while they're there, well, that's a big problem. Bosses who may be overbearing, uh, company goals that are unrealistic, like our company had, uh, unachievable goals, deadlines you can't meet, so many things. You name the, pro the profession, and problems will be a part of it. I guarantee you, if I talk to everyone in here about their job, they say, yeah, I have problems. Problems, problems, even. Productivity before the fall would no doubt have been phenomenal. A bumper, bumper crop every year if it, if it would have continued. But afterwards, thorns and thistles are part of the work world. In spite of that, the Lord still allows us to eat as a reward for our labor. And he says that a couple times in here. All the days of your life you can eat. You need to be thankful, by the way, for that paycheck you get from work. That's God's goodness to you. That's, that is a good thing. It's, it's not an easy thing to be in the workforce necessarily, but it's a good thing that God's provided your needs that way. He says in verse 18, we'll eat the plants of the field. Thankfully, we'll eat the plants of the field, but not without difficulty, not without pulling out the thorns and thistles by the root first. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. By the sweat of your face, there will be blood, sweat and tears at your job. Blood because of the, for Adam, blood because the thorns would pierce into his fingers. Sweat because of the exhausting heat and work. Tears from his toilsome labor. I challenge you to go work in the Florida humidity every day, all summer, without air conditioning, and then come back and tell me how it was. You'll be sweating a lot, a whole lot. I imagine Shane gets 
quite sweaty out there hacking down tree limbs all day. And it reminds me of this verse in Matthew 20 uh, where the laboring men are complaining because they only worked, you know, this, the guys that, that worked less hours got paid the same as the guys that worked more hours. This is clearly a union guys in Matthew 20. And they say this, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you pay us more? We've borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Don't you know it's hot out there? It's miserable. We're sweating. And that's how it is. But again, it says, you will eat bread. Isn't that a blessing? Think of it. Look at that little phrase. He's talking about his judgment. Sweat of your face, toilsome labor, but you're going to eat bread. You will eat bread. That's a blessing. You're going to sweat, but the good news is you're going to eat. Have you ever heard anybody say, I work because I want to eat? I've heard that several times, and that's a good reason to work, and it's biblical too, because what does 2 Thessalonians 3 say? If you don't work, neither should you eat. That's what he says. One of the themes of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is, has to do with the word eat. Look at, look at how many times this is said. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord says, commands the man, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it you will surely die. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you, will, you will shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God said? Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Look at chapter 3, verse 5, 5 and 6. For God, Satan says, for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from the fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Look at verse 11 and 12. God, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I command you not to eat? Verse 12 the man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. You're cursed. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. A lot of emphasis on eating and not eating, but the problem is they ate from the forbidden fruit. They ate from that which God said, Don't eat of this, and they did it anyway. And because man ate of the forbidden fruit, now he's going to eat by the sweat of his brow. Now he's going to eat because the labor is going to be toilsome, Thorns are going to be jabbing into his hands. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be a tough row to hoe. I'm thinking of some, a farmer in here, a former farmer. We have to understand that. The problems and difficulties of the workplace are a result of the curse. It's not, it's, again, work is not the curse. It's actually a blessing, but work will be fraught with problems. So let me ask you this. In light of this, should believers at their job site, should, at their company, should they complain and gripe about their job and have a bad attitude? Is that what they should do? Like, you hear, you hear this from the other guys. You hear it from the other people there. You hear complaining. 
Why this? Why that? What do I got to do? This? I don't like this boss. I don't like this. I don't like that. We could say many things about the theology of work, but we don't have time. But let's just say this. We should take Paul's advice and work hardly as unto the Lord. We, as a believer, you should work hardly as unto the Lord in a testimony for Christ on the job. We should be that way. One of the biggest ways you can witness on the job in your place of wherever you're at is by having a proper attitude by working hard. People see that. Bosses see that. If you have a sorry attitude and complaining about everything all the time, then you're not going to be a testimony for Christ. It's not going to happen. And those guys, those people at work, they see that. They see through all that. They, they may not agree with what you say, but they know whether you're the real deal or not. They know if you're a true believer by the way you act, by your attitude, by your, by your work ethic. If you have a job, you are blessed. Think about this. If you have a job, I know. I know. It's difficult. I know. Tomorrow's Monday. I get it. But think about this. If you have a job, you're blessed. You can at least eat. You can eat. And there's nothing wrong with looking for another job either or looking for a promotion if the Lord opens the door. You have the right attitude, seeking the Lord's will, those kind of things. But one of the effects of the ground being cursed is work is going to be difficult. Secondly, another effect, death will become a reality. Death will become a reality. Look at verse 19. He says, by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How long will you sweat it out? Uh, until you return to the ground. As I said earlier, it's all about the ground in these verses. Think about the man's relationship to the ground. Man is originally formed from the substance of the ground. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. 2, 7 says, In the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, it says. One of the commentators, Ken, Ken Matthews, says this, Dust from the ground is the raw material from which the physical properties of the man had their source. And so close is this connection between the ground and man that the Lord says in verse 19, you are dust. That's what you are. Psalm 103, verse 14, the Lord himself knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He remembers we are dust. He knows that. But not only does his origin bear a relationship to the ground, but also his job. He was told to cultivate the ground. That's his job. Chapter 2, verse 15. Cultivate the ground. And his final destination on this earth is where? Under the ground. He's going to die. And I'm only speaking of his final destination on earth. He's, his final destination eternally is heaven or hell. But eventually, he would die physically. We all die physically, unless the Lord returns first, which means we had better be spiritually prepared to meet him. We're not immortal. We need to think about that more than we do about the seriousness of life. Our bodies will be laid in the grave. Our souls are going to meet or live on. Are we ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet the Lord tonight? What about spiritual death, though? Adam and Eve were created in a state of innocence. They weren't born in sin. We're born in sin. They weren't. They were innocent. Did they die spiritually when they sinned? The answer is yes. They died spiritually when they sinned. Sin, death is a state of spiritual separation from God, alienation from God. Adam and Eve died spiritually when they sinned. And ever since then, everyone is born in a sin, born dead in a sin. Mike's been preaching on Ephesians. Ephesians 2, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, you guys, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You used to be dead in trespasses and sins, but now Christ has saved you. He's made you alive in Christ. 
But that's why we can't save ourselves. A dead person can do nothing to bring himself back to life. And a spiritually dead person can do nothing to bring him back himself to spiritual life. Only God can. Ephesians 2.5 says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God gives us spiritual life in Christ. That's his work. And so the effects of the curse uh, on the ground, work's going to be difficult. Death is going to be a reality. Thirdly, sin will be imputed. Sin will be imputed. Sin, it's not just Adam we're talking about here. We're not just talking about Eve, upon whom the sentence of judgment is passed, but we're talking about the whole human race. Sin is going to be imputed to the rest of us. Adam's sin. Credited to the rest of us. Placed upon the rest of us. This doctrine is the application of Genesis 3. And for that, I want us to turn to Romans 5. I, I would be wrong, I think, if I didn't have us go to Ro uh, Romans chapter 5 to look at Paul's application of this passage. Romans 5. This is a very important chapter in light of, of Genesis 3. Very important. We're not going to read the entire passage, but uh, when you get a chance, you should read it. The passage that we're concerned with is verses 12 to 21 in particular. Now, we're not going to explain the whole passage tonight, but I want to point out a few things here in this section. In fact, let's read verses 12 to 21. Therefore, verse 12 to 19, technically, therefore, just as through one man sinned entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from, the, from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of, the, of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so to make this simple, I think I'm going to do it this way because we're not going to do a full explanation of this. Uh, there are three main ideas we want to look at in here. I have a book by a man named George Zemeck. Uh, it's a theology book. Uh, I was fortunate to have Dr. Zemeck as a teacher, so it's Ken Fuller. And who else? Anybody else in here? Mike Sprott, you were, you were, okay, I didn't know, I didn't realize that. Okay, so George Zimmick wrote a book on theology, and I think I have the title of that in your notes, and in his brief look, by the way, Ken, I noticed this the other day in the cover, did you and your mother type the manuscript for that? That's a, I thought, wow, that's interesting that he typed the manuscript for that book, but in this brief look at the passage, I want to point out three ideas here, and in Romans 5, there are, first of all, two men, there are two acts, and there are two results that happen in Romans 5. This is very important you get this. The two men are Adam and Christ. You see that again and again. The, the contrast is made. 
The two acts are Adam's one trespass in the Garden of Eden and Christ's one act of righteousness on the cross. Now, Christ was always righteous, but that's what we're talking about here. The two results are condemnation through Adam and justification through Christ. Basically, in a nutshell, we can put that, this chapter, this section under that. For example, Romans 5.12, Justice through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The one man through whom sinner was Adam. We know that, right? Death was the result, spiritual and physical. Adam passed that his, to his descendants, his sin. He passed that on to his descendants, his sinful nature. That's called original sin. Now, it's called original because it came from Adam. We're not talking about Adam's sin here when we talk about original sin. We're talking about uh, our sin. That's what original sin has to do with our sin. The term original sin has to do with the sins. Wayne Grudem says the sin that is ours as a result of Adam's fall. It's the spiritual, sinful condition of everyone because of our relationship to Adam. We're related to him. So we've sinned. We're counted guilty because of Adam's sin. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. Now somebody says, well, that's not very fair. I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Why is that fair to me? Why do I get blamed for his sin? Well, first of all, do any of us here think we're better than Adam or that we would have fared any better than Adam did in his circumstances? And furthermore, as it has been said, you may think, this isn't fair that I inherited Adam's sin, that I had this passed down to me. It's not fair. But by the same token, is it fair that Christ gave you his righteousness? We don't deserve that. And yet he did for all believers. But that's, that's true as well. Romans 5.19, through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's what it says. We have this sin passed on to us. Verse 18, so then as through one transgression, Adam's transgression, there resulted condemnation to how many men? All men, right? That's what the, that's what the, the scripture says. Let me explain it this way. I, I'm going to quote from the book Biblical Doctrine because I want to be precise. Adam's sin is imputed to all who are united to him as the representative of humanity. Adam is the representative of all humanity, representing us. Adam's guilt is our guilt. So a corrupt nature is passed down from Adam to us, and all people are condemned because we're in a direct relationship with him. That's the, the representative uh, headship view, it's called, sometimes called the federal view. When Adam, set, when Adam sinned, he, he represented all people. Therefore, his sin is reckoned to his descendants. We, he passed this on to us. Adam sinned. But I don't have to tell you that. Is it just Adam who sinned? No. We sin also. I don't have to tell you that. All you have to do is look in the scripture and find out, first of all, that we're sinners. And secondly, if you don't like that, if that's not good enough, look at your past week. And you'll find out every day you had to repent of sin, as well as I. To strengthen this further, Westminster Confession says this. Our first parents, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity. In other words, all of us received this inheritance of sin nature. London Baptist Confession. Our first parents, by their sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, we in them fell as well, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. I know we're getting into a lot of doctrine here, but this is very important to see what happened as a result of Adam's sin. Now, back in 1690, 
a man wrote a, a textbook, a man by the name of Benjamin Harris, that's called the New England Primer. I was talking to Adam. I thought of Adam. How do I wake up in the night thinking about the New England Primer and Adam Keffer? Because he teaches school. And I talked to him today about that, and I think they call it New England Primer back then, not Primer. And they say that was the single most influential Christian textbook in history and the first reading uh, book designed for the American colonies. In fact, most, if not all, the founding fathers were educated out of the New England Primer. Primer. And in that book, Benjamin Harris wrote about the fall of man because back then in the textbooks they had the Bible and, and all this. They didn't, we don't have today, of course. And he wrote these famous words. You can memorize this. It's very easy. Children, if you don't memorize, you, this is something you need to memorize. Zeke and all the Kefir gang out there and all you guys, listen to this. Very easy thing to memorize. In Adam's fall, we send all. In Adam's fall, we send all. All of us send in Adam. And so that's been passed down to us. In Adam's fall, we send all. That's the most concise way to put it. So we talk about the fall of Adam, and we talk about inheriting his sin and sin being transmitted to us and all this. So does that mean that we're hopelessly tied in with Adam's sin, eternal condemnation, that there's no escape? Thankfully, no. Romans 5 not only describes the imputation of Adam's sin to us, but it describes another representative. Another representative head, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we saw this. There's this contrast between Adam and Christ. The good news is Christ came to set us free from Adam's sin. Adam's sin. Christ never sinned. He never did sin. Judgment resulted from the one transgression of Adam. Justification results from the one act of Christ and those who receive his gift. Verse 17 says those who receive. Just as Adam's disobedience... Just by absence, we were made sinners, so through Christ we're made, we're made saints because of his obedience. Adam is the representative of all humanity. Christ is the representative of saved humanity, of righteous humanity. And that's how it works. Another passage we can look at, and we'll just, let me just read these verses in 1 Corinthians 15. If you get a chance, read that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, Adam... By a man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Similar language, similar language to Romans 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It is also written, where is it written at? Genesis 2, 7. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Christ gives life to the spiritually dead. We can be thankful that this is what Christ did, our representative. He became a curse for us. He took our curse upon himself. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become what? A curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21. And that, that passage talks about the law, the curse of the law, which came after Genesis. But the point I want you to get is this. Christ became a curse for us, a curse on the tree. Now, we're under the curse, we're under the curse of sin, but Christ became our curse for us. That's amazing grace, amazing love of Christ. Adam failed the test miserably in the garden. Christ passed the test with flying colors. Think of it like this. In sorrow, Adam would plow the field. But Christ was the man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. Adam would have to pull out the thorns of the ground, but Christ wore a crown of thorns on our behalf as he approached the cross. 
Adam would have to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. But Christ, prior to the cross, uh, as it were, sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, it says. Adam died. Christ died too, but he also rose again. He's the last Adam. A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, the fall has afforded God an opportunity. Listen to this interesting statement. The fall has afforded God an opportunity to exhibit his wisdom and display the riches of his grace to an extent which so far as we can see he never could have done had not sin entered the world. Have you ever thought of it like that? That God could never have shown his grace in Christ unless sin had entered the world like it did. He goes on to say this, the redeemed have gained more through the last Adam than they lost through the first Adam. They occupy a more exalted position. They are partakers of a, of a divine nature. So whatever we lost in Adam has been more than realized through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin. He didn't know any sin. He didn't commit sin. He never spoke a vile word. <clears throat> who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Amazing. Adam sinned, we sinned, Christ became sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin was imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. That's called the great exchange. People have called that the great exchange. My sin for Christ's righteousness. And so Stephen sang that song, his robes for mine tonight. A wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. He took all this brunt, this wrath of God upon him. I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. In my place. That's the best exchange I ever heard. I urge you tonight, if you've never considered this, to consider this exchange that Christ did with us, with us sinners. So the effects of the ground being cursed, work is going to be difficult, death is going to be a reality, sin is going to be imputed. Fourthly, creation will suffer. Creation will. Now we've talked about the ground being cursed, but uh, there's going to be a coming day when the curse is lifted. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm doing these different chapters because it's necessary to see the application Paul gives. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says this, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Yet we're, for the time being, we're living in a cursed world, subjected to many kinds of sufferings, subjected to futility. Uh, e but even the creation itself is groaning, it says, to the, for the time when it's no longer subjected to futility, where it's no longer under this curse. It wants to be free from its slavery to corruption. It, it doesn't, the creation itself hates the sin curse. Verse 22 likens the groaning to the pains of childbirth which even all women were placed under in Genesis 3. And so one day, creation itself will be released from its bondage. Now, we don't live in a four-season climate here. Uh, we live in a two-season climate. One season is humidity. 
Second one is less humidity. <laughs> but believe it or not, there are people in this world living in four seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall. And I bring that up because how many of you lived in uh, uh, snow, wintertime somewhere where it was snowing, those kind of things? Uh, I bring that up because Martin Lloyd-Jones told an illustration of how every nature, or every, every year, nature makes an effort to renew itself. And now this is a four-season climate, okay? Put yourself in this, get out of Florida for a minute here. There's, there's wintertime. Boy, I tell you, if, you ever, if you've ever lived in a place like this, you know what wintertime is. It's, as Lloyd-Jones described it, as death and darkness and gray skies and frigid conditions and dreary days. And that's true. It, the gray skies continue day after day after day after day. And you wonder, when is this going to end? Then the spring comes in, like a whole new world opened up. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. Uh, you see, <laughs> when I was up north, I remember romance was in the air. All of a sudden, couples were out there walking and talking, and all this was happening. Everything seems right with the world, as if spring was trying to stay there permanently because it had gone through birth pains in the wintertime. It was so miserable, and it was seeking to establish something permanent, a new world. But Lloyd-Jones says this, but unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring only leads to summer, whereas summer leads to autumn, and autumn to winter. Back again, same cycle. Poor nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that's in it, but it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as, it, as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together. It's been doing so for a very long time. But nature still repeats the effort annually. One of these days, it's going to dawn in a new era. We look for that, he says. Yeah, we do, we do look for that. We should, if we don't look for that, we should. We should, as Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should look for that. That's our hope. Christ is our hope. So don't let this cursed world get you down. I know it's difficult. Don't let it get you down. I know it's trying. It's maddening. It's frustrating. Work is difficult. Monday through Friday routine is difficult. Uh, death will be a reality for all of us because we're under the curse. That's true. But for the believer, it's not a hopeless situation. Think, think of yourself. You're a believer in Christ. You face all these things in life. It's not a hopeless situation. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We know Christ. We can have his joy. We can have his peace. We can have his contentment in a world even like ours. Look to him. He's your hope. Christ is your hope. He's your victory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We pray that uh, we'll take the truth of it tonight. Help us to not be depressed and discouraged in life because Life is trying, life is difficult, there's many problems we all face, but help us to uh, be under your lordship, uh, be submitted to your lordship, uh, live, live for you, Lord, knowing that through the Holy Spirit we can have peace and joy and love and, and contentment, all these kind of things. We pray we'll live as Christians in this world, live as lights in this world to be a testimony for others who are in depression, who are in misery, Lord, so we might tell them the good news of the gospel by our life and by what we say, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.